I am Samuel Hansen, and this is Relatively Prime, Fights from the Mathematical Domain. I've been feeling a bit nostalgic recently, and I was thinking about this old show of mine. No, no, don't guess. I can almost guarantee you've never heard of this one. It was called Science Sparring Society. It was all based around this tweet by Frank Swain, and it was to make this podcast that would tell the stories of fights from the history of science. It was so much fun to make, and I was always kind of sad that more people didn't get the chance to hear it. So I thought, why not just make up for that now and share the two mathematical fights that I covered on Science Sparring Society here on Relatively Prime? And that is exactly what I have decided to do. So with no further ado, here are episodes one and seven from my 2012 podcast, Science Sparring Society. I'm Samuel Hansen. You're listening to Science Sparring Society. In the early 19th century on a hill above the city of Nottingham, there lived a miller named George Green. He was more than just a miller, though. With his 1828 work, an essay on the application mathematical analysis to the theories of electricity and magnetism, he accomplished something that no Englishman had for around a century. Mathematical relevance. Admittedly, this relevance was not noticed until four years after his death, when the essay was rediscovered by Lord Kelvin. The work itself was very important, and contains results that are still taught to students today. But at the time, the style of the mathematics was the truly relevant thing. It was a style that had fallen terminally out of favor in England in January 1715, when what everyone thought was the last shot of the calculus wars had been fired. Looking back, it can be said that the calculus wars were inevitable. It was post-Renaissance Europe. Mathematics had been restored as the queen of the sciences. The groundwork was there for someone to make a truly apocal discovery, and there were two people alive with the mental aptitude to do just that. It really was too bad that they didn't get along. One of the men held a chair at one of the top universities in his country, was a mover and shaker in the Royal Society, became a member of Parliament and head of the Mint, and is considered by many to be the greatest scientist of all time. The other was a polymath. He wrote on history, economics, linguistics, celestial and terrestrial mechanics, biology, geology, law, diplomacy, politics, and mathematics. People have called him the last universal genius and the most comprehensive thinker since Aristotle. This was the war between Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz. This was the calculus war, and there were to be casualties. Their lives could have hardly started differently. Born on Christmas Day, 1642, or if you wish to go by our current calendar, January 4th, 1643, Newton had a rough beginning to his life. He was first shoved off to his grandparents at the young age of three so that his mother could live with her new husband. And then after his death, she sent him to a school so far away from their house that he had to room with the local apothecary. At the age of 16, she pulled him from that same school, where he had never really excelled, in order to help her run the family farm. It was only through the meddling of the local schoolmaster and his uncle that his mother was finally persuaded to let him attend Trinity College, Cambridge. He started his studies there at the age of 18. 
Four years later, Newton would graduate, just in time to have to flee to the country from the plague. Two years later, in 1667, he returned. One year after that, he attained his MA and became a fellow of the college. Finally, in 1669, Newton's life turned all the way around when he was appointed as the second Lucasian chair of mathematics. Leibniz, on the other hand, was a summer baby. Born on July 1st in Leipzig, the year 1646, he was an exceptional student, even teaching himself Latin and Greek at the age of 12. In 1661, at the age of 14, he entered university and finished his bachelor's degree within two years. He immediately began to seek his doctorate, but at the age of 20, he was denied in Leipzig, even though he was seen as a good scholar. After that, he left for Altdorf, Nuremberg, where he gained his doctorate less than a year later. He turned down the professorship that was offered, preferring to work as a lawyer in Mainz, where he also worked as a librarian, an advisor, and a diplomat for the local nobility. Leibniz's life started to change, and not necessarily for the better, in 1672, when he traveled to France and England to perform diplomatic work. After he returned to Paris from England, he had found that his patron had passed away, and so had his job. He decided to stay in France, living in near poverty to pursue his academic whims. Through the 2020 lenses afforded to us by history, it is clear that Newton developed the calculus first. In fact, it was during the years that Newton had escaped to the country to avoid the plague that he developed what he called the method of fluxions. As for Leibniz, he didn't start to work on the calculus until he was living as a destitute scholar in France from 1673 to 1675. This eight-year gap between the development of the genius's versions of the calculus was destined to be the root cause of all that would come next. Newton was not a fan of publishing his work. Mostly, he was not a fan of criticism. He had been convinced to publish his work on the particle theory of optics, which had been rather harshly treated by a certain Robert Hooke, an entirely separate scientific battle, and was clearly not looking forward to dealing with similar treatment again. All this meant that he did not publish his work on fluxions when he developed it. Even without publishing it, people were aware of his work. The two in the know who are most central were John Collins, a book publisher, and Henry Oldenburg, the secretary of the Royal Society. Not only were these two aware of Newton's work with fluxions, Collins had even tried to convince him to publish. They were also correspondents of Leibniz's during the Parisian years. Collins in particular kept Leibniz appraised of the newest ideas from the Royal Society. These are letters that would have been best left unwritten. As Leibniz's work began to solidify, Collins and Oldenburg knew what trouble was on the horizon. So they both pushed Newton to publish his work, which of course he refused. It was Oldenburg that managed to convince Newton to write to Leibniz. The two letters that Newton wrote, both in 1676, were meant as signposts, indicating that Newton had already tread on the robe that Leibniz was traveling down. Newton was too paranoid for his own good, though, and coded the meaning of fluxions instead of announcing his work straight away. The second letter, the one with the coded message, was also a bit late in arriving. It did not reach Leibniz until he had taken up residence as librarian and counselor for the Duke of Hanover after leaving Paris. Leibniz did stop by London on his way, though, and paid a visit to Collins, where he was given access to a collection of papers that Collins happened to have on hand. Given what Collins knew of Newton, and of the work that they were both doing, he should have known better.
Then came the silent period. Newton was working on his alchemical studies in the Principia Mathematica, and Leibniz was administering libraries, failing to drain the Harz Mountains, producing a never-to-be-completed history of the Guelph family, and developing an algebra of thought. There would never again be silence between these two. Finally, in October 1684, years after he had finished his work on the calculus, Leibniz published the first ever paper on the subject. There was no mention of Newton, but as he was busy with the finalization of the Principia, Newton didn't respond. Then two years later, Leibniz published another calculus paper, again without mentioning Newton. By this point, Cambridge was near boiling, and Newton was now sure that Leibniz was a thief. The war was about to start. The Calculus War was admittedly a war of words and letters. It did have a few pitch battles, and both sides did have armies. Leibniz had the Bernoullis on his side. They had realized the power of the calculus and were already using it heavily. They were rather ardent supporters of Leibniz and went well beyond just preaching the gospel of his calculus around Europe. One of the Bernoullis, Johann, even claimed that it was Newton that plagiarized Leibniz's work and referred to a certain individual of the Scottish race as Newton's ape, Newton's toady, and a hired pen. He was referring to one of Newton's supporters, John Keel, who was very vocal in favor of Newton's claim for the calculus. Also on Newton's side was John Wallace and Fatio de Duyer, a rare European disciple. Wallace particularly pushed Newton to publish out of national pride. There's no way he was going to let people think that the Germans could have developed something as wondrous as the calculus. Eventually, he did get Newton to agree to publish the two letters he wrote to Leibniz, but this had little effect on the ever-growing war. None of Newton's supporters were on the Bernoulli's level, though, and Leibniz even referred to them as Newton's lost children. Newton himself stayed rather quiet, until, that is, he heard of Collins and Oldenburg's correspondence with Leibniz. This was the last straw, and he started to directly claim that Leibniz had stolen the calculus from him, identifying the theft as having taken place during the 76 visit to Collins. Then, in 1704, Newton finally published an account of his calculus as an appendix to the optics. A review surfaced in the next year that was clearly written by a thinly-veiled Leibniz, where he accused Newton of using his version of the calculus. Then, in 1708, Keel jumped in with an article for the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, where he said the following. All of these laws follow from the now highly celebrated arithmetic of fluxions, which Mr. Newton, without any doubt, first invented, as anyone who reads his letters published by Wallace can readily determine. Yet the same arithmetic, under a different name and method of notation, was afterwards published by Mr. Leibniz in the Acta Eruditorum. It was this article that spawned the climactic battle, as when Leibniz finally saw the article a couple of years later, he demanded from the Royal Society and received an apology from Kiel. This was a bit of a surprise given that the presidency of the Royal Society had been taken over by Newton in 1703. It quickly became clear as to why it was given, as Newton helped Kiel write a non-apology, which contained the following words. As he, Mr. Newton, 
had in two letters to Oldenburg, which the latter transmitted to Leibniz, given pretty plain indications to that man of most perceptive intelligence, whence Leibniz derived the principles of that calculus, or at least could have derived them. This was not exactly what Leibniz had been looking for, and he again expressed his anger to the Royal Society. It was then that Newton saw a way to end the war. Since both Kiel and Leibniz were fellows of the society, he could create a committee to investigate Leibniz's claim against Kiel, and therefore his own claim of priority. The committee was highly weighted towards Newton's supporters, and without surprise, it concluded that Newton was the discoverer of the calculus, and hence what Kiel had said was totally within the realm of propriety. It was then in January 1715 that the transactions published a report of this committee, written anonymously by Newton, that clearly was meant to finish off the calculus war and any claim that Leibniz may have had. Leibniz's life at this point had really started to fall apart. He had never received a better posting than that which he had started with in Hanover, and in 1714 his boss had become the king of England. This sounds like it would have been a good thing, but the politics of the crowning happened to include wrangling involving the calculus, which only left Leibniz farther out in the cold. He only lasted one year after the Royal Society report had been published, and he was buried at a funeral that only his former secretary attended. Newton, on the other hand, lived for 11 years after Leibniz's death, glorious in his victory in the calculus wars and in his fame as the world's greatest scientist. Even Voltaire was a fan, saying after Newton's funeral, If all the geniuses in the world were assembled, he, Newton, should lead the band. So that should be it. Newton had, through superior tactics, and a legitimate point of having written the calculus down first, even if he didn't publish it and Leibniz in no way plagiarized it, won the calculus war. Except that he didn't. He won the calculus battle. The war continued on after his death. While Newtonian calculus became a point of national pride for the English, the rest of Europe realized that the Leibnizian notation was superior and decided to adopt it. Because of this, England actually became a scientific backwater, whose best and brightest were not able to parse the latest and the greatest from the continent. While Euler and the Bernoullis and Lagrange and many, many others were experiencing one of the greatest periods of mathematical discovery in history, it was not until 101 years after Newton's death, when finally a miller on a hill above Nottingham brought England back from the mathematical dark ages that the calculus war had sent them into. From a mathematical perspective, infinity clearly exists. 
The argument is simple. In fact, I think I remember hearing it on the playground in elementary school. It goes like this. Name the largest number. Oh, well, well, what about that? Plus one. And there you have it. Infinity must exist, because if it did not, that child on the playground would be able to name the largest number without fear of the plus one retort. Mathematicians were comfortable with this line of reasoning for millennia. Infinity exists. And that's all well and good, and really why spend too much time thinking about it when we have so many great problems to work with down here in the finite numbers. Then, in the 1870s, that all changed, and many mathematicians were thinking about infinity, including two of the most brilliant minds of the time, one of whom it could be argued was in love with infinity, and the other loathed it with all of his soul. This is Science Sparring Society. I am Samuel Hansen. The man who loved infinity was George Cantor. His story is now more myth than truth, but it does seem that he fought a lifelong battle with bipolar disorder, and that it all too often saw him institutionalized. Cantor's work on infinity is now also a thing of legend, and his diagonalization method is taught to mathematics students with a true reverence. It was this method that led to the result that led to the fight with the man who hated infinity. It was this diagonalization that allowed Cantor to prove that there was more than one size of infinity. Stop to think about that for a second. Infinity, by its very definition, is unlimited. And what Cantor was saying was that, yes, the integers are infinite, they are unlimited, but the real numbers? The, the decimal numbers are an even bigger infinity. To some, this was amazing. A breakthrough, a fundamental shift in the foundations of mathematics that would open up new doors that heretofore no one had even guessed the existence of. But Cantor knew that there would be others that would not look nearly as kindly upon his work. He knew this because he was a former student of the man who abhorred infinity. The man whose name was Leopold Kronecker. Kronecker had a few deserved reputations by that time. His first was as a truly amazing mathematician, 
one of the leading German mathematicians of that era. He was also known for being a strict finitist. That meant that he did not believe in the legitimacy of mathematical objects that could not be derived from the natural numbers in a finite number of steps. He stated it best himself, God made integers. All else is the work of man. Finally, Kronecker was known for being a bit of a jerk. Knowing him as he did, Cantor did try to avoid drawing his ire at first. He even named his paper rather innocuously on a property of the set of all real algebraic numbers, avoiding all mention in the title of the real meat of his result. Not that this saved him, as not long after this initial paper was published, Kronecker was using his position as a member of an editorial board to delay publication of a Cantor paper. Beyond that, Kronecker also called Cantor a scientific charlatan and referred to him as a corrupter of the youth. The story here is that this treatment by Kronecker, and quite a few others it must be said, coupled with Cantor's own failure to work out a mathematical problem called the continuum hypothesis, was the impetus behind Cantor's ever downward spiraling mental health. As I mentioned before, this is probably more myth than truth. But I doubt that the words being flung his way did anything to help his psyche. All of this yelling by Kronecker and all of the defending by Cantor was not without benefit. It allowed Cantor to develop a philosophy of mathematics that centered around free and open discussion of new theory, believing as he did that as long as the mathematics was consistent, it belonged in the realm of discussion, whether it was finitist or constructivist or any other mathematical school. It was this philosophy that led Cantor to create the Union of German Mathematicians and become one of the people who drove for the mathematics community to start holding regular international meetings. Meetings which began in Zurich in 1897. In the end, Cantor's proof that there's multiple sizes of infinity held up. As he said, my theory stands as firm as a rock. Every arrow directed against it will return quickly to its archer. 
I can remember the awe that I felt when I first found out about this result, and then my amazement when I saw his diagonalization proof. Really, Cantor's work goes well beyond just standing up. It opened up mathematics to the great foundational reformulation of the early 20th century, and began the field known as set theory. Kronecker, on the other hand, is still a name that is attached to many very important works of mathematics, but he might be looked upon with a bit more fondness if he had maintained civility in his disagreement, especially turning out, as he did, to be wrong. Well, I'm going to let David Hilbert close us out with his beautiful quote, No one shall expel us from the paradise that Cantor has created. I hope that y'all enjoyed this blast from my podcasting past and the stories about the Calculus War and Infinity. The music was from Liverpool Guitar Society, DJ Low, Cameron Music, Folk Shallow, Rob Simpson, TC Randolph, EJL Flop, and Bleerix. You can find links to their work on relprime.com, or you can also find links to the rest of the fights that I talked about on Science Sparring Society, as well as old episodes of Relatively Prime, if this episode also makes you feel a bit nostalgic. Just a quick reminder, Rail Prime is made possible by its wonderful patrons on Patreon. If you want to help me continue to make this show, head on over to patreon.com slash railprime and toss in a buck or two. That's it. That's, that's really just about it. So thank you so much for listening. And as always, I hope that you have a math week.